All right, will you join with me in Psalm 23? I would like to stick with a common practice that we have, and that's to read through a portion of Scripture and catch the context, if you would, and then come back and kind of break it down and look a little deeper into it. It's kind of like an overview where you kind of look and see this is what's there. Now let's get close and kind of take a, a, you know, kind of break it apart and see what's within it. So let's read here in Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, beginning with verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Verse 4. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, beginning, as I mentioned, back there in verse 1, and we're going to walk our way through and see some of these truths that are you know, on the surface and some that have deeper roots for us to be reminded of. The first thing I draw your attention to is that David, a shepherd, a king, a man of many gifts and many abilities and you know, much experience, is sharing what God has shown him. We know it's a psalm of David, but it's the word of the Lord. You know, God writes on the tablet, on the heart of David, these truths that are to be brought forth. It's not dependent upon David to comprehend it. He's an instrument that God brings his word into and then brings it forth for history, for humanity. The... the, the, the Scriptures are closed, if you would, in the sense of the written word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we've received it. And it's fascinating to me that God brought it through people. Can we agree? He could have made it known in many different ways. He could have made it, it could have been documented. It could have been stone cold, hard, clear, concise. You just now have to do it. But interesting, very interesting, I think. The God of creation chose to reveal his truth through his created beings, specifically humanity, to reveal that truth. And then we know, of course, he then comes as a man, setting aside, so to speak, his, his time on the throne, his divine prerogatives, Philippians tells us, and coming as a man to rescue humanity. It, it just I hope you can embrace it a little more deeply because you know, David is the instrument that the truth comes through and we can relate to the truth because we can understand some of David's trials, but the truth stands on its own, stands here so clear and concise. David, look at what he describes. Now, the title that you give someone or that you recognize in someone helps to reveal the relationship with that person. I'd mentioned, I went a little traveling here this last week. I went with Kim, my wife. You know, that title, it conveys a certain element of the relationship. And you can just think about how that applies in various aspects. David conveys the Lord is my shepherd. The title is, is one that he knew. It's one that he understood. His Jewish roots, of course, then brought him to this conveyance of a term. that's a Jewish Hebrew term, Jehovah. It speaks of, it means the eternal one. David speaks of the Lord, his Lord. Many people we know seek support and relief and hope and strength from an entity or a power outside themselves. In our culture, we have a a common program and philosophy to to discover the higher power. Not so much singular the, but your higher power. Looking outside of yourself. And many people in in tough times, they they realize I can't handle I can't answer this. So they look outside of themselves to find some way to bring about this relief. David knew what the word means there is the eternal one the existing one, 
the one who was and is and is to come. David knew. That's who he is. That's who his is, is his Lord. And so some of us have been, you know, exposed to, or maybe we could say raised around various human opinions, even forms and types of religion that tell us this is what God is like. But they're not accurate because there's only one God, the existing one. See, God cannot be made. He's always been. Idols, you know, which are uh, a human attempt to formulate a physical depiction of a deity, functionally. So here's this thing made by hand. Uh, it, it can be made, but it doesn't give it power. Replacement powers can be worshipped, but only Jehovah is God. You know, some people see power in a philosophy or a theory or a collection of doctrine and order. But there's no power in it, not as we would consider the God of creation. You can be compelled by certain uh, motivational statements, right? And there is a sense of like vitality. It's like, oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah. But when you get behind that and when you embrace that and when you focus on that, you deplete it. You almost delete it because you're all excited about it, but then you realize there is no power in it. It's my generation of enthusiasm or vitality because I'm in agreement with what it says, but there's no power in it. See, it's so important that we understand this really basic reality. God is the author of life. Jehovah, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who's always been, the eternal one, the existing one, he is God. It's the triunity of God the Bible speaks of. You know, commonly we think of the tr- doctrine of the Trinity, speaking of three gods, but I think you could agree the wording of triunity is a good depiction, a, a description of the nature of God. One God existing in three personages, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God of the Bible is the eternal God. So where am I going with this? Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Many of us know our recreation. Many of us are familiar with the vocation. But do we know the author of creation? Do we know our Bible? Because how are you going to know God? Because it's really so amazing, seriously. He conveys it to you in elementary language, the truths of eternity. What do I mean by elementary language? He speaks to you his truth through another person, and the truth is eternal. So we know David, and we know we can read through, like the, the apostle Paul was used in the New Testament. These truths are brought forth, and we have been given the capacity uniquely in, in all of creation, at least in this physical realm, we've been given the ability to assimilate language, to formulate language, to, to, to decipher, so to speak, to see these marks and these little lines on paper and bring that into a language and establish meaning to the... Do you realize, do I realize that that's unique? There's no deer dialect. You know, there's not the ways of the bear where they sit and study a manual to know how to be a bear. Do you get it? There's just what, what is there on this planet that possesses the capacity and received the gift of the word of God? Nobody, no created being. And here we have it. So I want to encourage you, know your Bible. Because you and we, I, we're living in a time now more than ever, you need to know your Bible. You need to know your God. You know, we live here in the West and we're, you know, working through various cultural shifts, and we've been exposed to different things. Some claim to be witnesses of Jehovah. Some claim to be saints of the latter days. But they try to change God to fit their preferences. They try to re-describe and redefine God to fit what they want. And you won't be able to pick up on it unless you know the living word, unless you know God. Know your Bible. If you were working in a bank, it's, it's a diminishing example because we're shifting to a digital society. But 
you used to have to take this, well, it's, it's, I think I have some, I don't have my wallet. Um, that, this green stuff has numbers on it. You know, I think what they call currency. It, we're not currently using it much, but currency. And so how did you know it was real or counterfeit? Well, you didn't study all the counterfeits, did you? You might be aware of some trend, but going back, when people studied it, they, they literally were taught to handle the real thing, to get a feel for it. It has a bit of a smell or something in it with the ink and the type of paper and all these things. You studied the real thing. And because you had a knowledge of the real thing, you were able to identify something that didn't quite fit. Something that just didn't look right, didn't smell right, didn't feel right. There's just something wasn't right. Well, you see the picture, or what a simple illustration and, and beautiful encouragement, I believe. Know your Bible. Know the Word of God. Now more than ever. Know what the Word of God has to say. We've been going through the Psalms, and here recently we were able to see where God says of humanity... Before anybody knew you, I knew you. I formed you in the womb. And I took the time, as I'm going to do right now, and I talked about a contemporary issue that's revealed in Scripture. Life begins at conception. And we're living in a time, and it's a sad declaration, not only upon the church, but on the, the, the intelligence of humanity, that we could somehow get drawn down to a secondary issue without resolving the primary point. You know, if you're trying to resolve something secondary, but you haven't established the primary, then this is a complete waste of time, agreed? You, anything in life, philosophy, mathematics, anything, you, just, you, can't, you can't even discuss this unless this is established. So what are we trying to establish? Well, when does life begin? When does life begin? Well, we can't know that. Well, we actually can we can prove it medically, scientifically, um, photographically, through videography. Well, that's just your opinion. Okay, let's back away from this and let's identify this discussion. You come upon a terrible scene, a tragic accident, multiple bodies on the street. It's gory, it's gross, and it's shocking to you. And as you come upon this scene, you realize you want to help. And, and so how do you come alongside the first responders that are just there? Well, maybe you get stuff out of the way or you follow instruction. And those people who are responding have to determine which ones are currently alive and which ones are sadly a casualty. How can they decide which one? It can't be graphically. It can't be, you know, you see what I'm saying? It can't be who seems to be the best. You have to go and you have to find something that conveys there's life here. So what do you do? You look for signs of life. You look for certain measurable, medically, scientifically proven ways to say, okay, there is a, a life here. So why would you not use those same signs to determine life if someone's living in a different place? Why would you not use that same measure in the womb to confirm what you used on the street? Do you see what I'm saying? Abortion is a secondary issue. Establishing of when life begins, what is life, is the question. And we have been drawn away and drawn down and deceived into believing that this over here is the issue. It's not the issue. Because if you can't establish it here and you won't apply it in the womb then you won't apply it when someone's older either. You won't apply it when you deem that person to be unworthy or unproductive in society. Do you see what happens? Well, where do I take this? You know, well, it looks like Dan's just jumping on the moment to deal with a, a current issue. Well, yeah, of course I am. I believe that should be done in the church. I believe we should know the word of God. We should know our position based on the promises of God, the person of God, and the place God has put us. We should know his word. And we should be able to stand on that because we know it, because the Lord is my shepherd. I don't get to say, well, I just don't want to bring it up. I just don't want to talk about it. I, I, you know, those are awkward things, and I want to be, have a good connection with people. There's certain things you draw a line in the sand, and you say, I, this is just truth. 
This just is what it is, and that's how we have to deal with it. And there's times we have to do that. And man, I want to know I'm doing that, you're doing that, we're doing that, because the one who gives life, the one who was and is and is to come, has declared to you and me what life is. And he is my shepherd. I love what David says here because he's conveying. Now, we know we can look at David's life and and go, wow, he had an interesting, he was an interesting personality to breathe the one who brought the promises and the truth through because he was a shepherd. And so we know he could, how how could David, I would have loved to hear David seeing this, wouldn't you? Because I wonder how it would come across because it's such a knowledge of of this, the Lord, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. He understood, what is the shepherd? The shepherd leads, the shepherd provides, and the shepherd protects. We know that just from that term. We, we associate it most frequently to sheep, but it does apply to other functionally domesticated animals as well. The shepherd knows the needs of the sheep. The shepherd knows the ways of the sheep. The shepherd also does what is best for the sheep. So David declares, the Lord is my shepherd. Two things I think you should make note of and even consider. The first one, is he your shepherd? The Lord was my wife's shepherd for over a year and a half of our marriage. I was not yet a Christian. So I was okay with the concepts, and I was okay with the transformation that was taking place in her life. I, I was in agreement. It was actually very beneficial to me as a person, how she was changing. So I, I liked it. But he wasn't my shepherd. He was her shepherd. See, it, it, it changed after a, about a year of her growing in Christ that I started seeing that she had something I didn't have. I was in agreement with the principle and the concept and the whole oversight, so to speak, but it wasn't until he became my shepherd that I understood that he was the existing one, the eternal one. So I want you to say, is he my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. Notice it also is indicating not only personal, my shepherd, but present. It's not the Lord was my shepherd. It's not the Lord will be my shepherd. It's the Lord is my shepherd. Now, some of us who have been Christians for a longer period, if we're willing to be... Um, transparent, personally, intimately with God. I wouldn't request this type of transparency face-to-face with another person initially. First, it has to be before the Lord. Where I would say, or you would say, in your private time, maybe even today and this week, are you my shepherd? You were, you were, in that situation, in that scenario, in that season of my life, wow, that was exciting times. That previous duty station and that past place I lived in. But the question why I want to ask me, and you, should, you can do it yourself before the Lord, is are you my shepherd now? Are you, do you get to lead me now? Do I resist? Do I restrict? Do I hinder? Do I quench? Those are words speaking of God's leading by the Holy Spirit. Those are words coming out of the, the New Testament. Do I hinder your work? Are you my shepherd? Do I, do I believe, and I hope you can embrace this, especially if you've been through hardship and if you've traveling, perhaps still traveling, the road, the pathway of trial and tribulation. Do you say, will you look at this and go, Lord, you are my shepherd now. You are. I believe you know what's best for me. I have to settle that. I have to hold on to that. I have to set that first as as of primary importance. God, you know what's best for me, and you work for, you bring to, you present, you bring about what's best for me. Is your trial proven he knows what's best for you? Trials can't prove that. Is your wealth, your prosperity, your whatever it is, it's, is it proving he knows what's best for you? See, you don't want to make it, those things prove it. You hold it first. I know he knows and works towards what's best for me. But what about tragedy? Doesn't change the truth. What about difficulty? Doesn't deny the reality. I still know. Now, that's, that's something I hold. That's not what I feel. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's many times I don't feel God knows what he's doing. I don't feel he knows what's best for me. But feelings are fleeting. They're attached to the senses. They're not established in truth. 
They're, they're, they're wonderful. They've got their place, but that's not their place. And so I want to recognize that, hey, Lord, you, you know what's best for me. And I believe you're accomplishing it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, it's not speaking of I will deny certain desires. What that literally is speaking of, because he's the Lord, because he's my shepherd currently, and faithful historically, but currently my shepherd, I will lack nothing. I, I won't lack anything. I will, I will be content because I know he provides everything. Now, I may have unrest. I may have a little challenge here and there, many, but I'm not lacking anything. Man, if we as a society and as a people can learn to discern the difference between desires and needs, man, how liberating is that? Desires are too closely attached to keeping up with everybody else. Desires are too closely fed by cultural provision and comparison. Needs are way different. You ever desired something, got it, and then realized you didn't need it? As a matter of fact, it was actually a detriment or a hindrance once you, you attach to it. So this is just saying, it's not that I, I will determine. I, I'm not going to want anything. No, it's that contentness and a sense of comfort and confidence that he is my shepherd. I, I'm not going to lack anything. He will meet my needs perfectly. You know, he will take care of me perfectly. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's not a makes of, of overbearingness but rather of provision, of, of perfectness. Because he is the shepherd, because he knows you, he knows me, he knows the ways of the sheep, he knows what's best for the sheep. And because that's happening, he brings you to, he brings me to lie down. It literally speaks to stretch out in green pastures. So think nap. Think, you know, up in the hills, and there's a warm day in town, but you're up in this green area, and it's nice and calm, and there's a creek you hear rippling, and you're just there, and, and you're super hungry. So therefore, you lay down and rest. Yeah, you, you seemed to have lost me on that one, didn't you? You don't rest when you're hungry. That, that's why we have a term hangry. Because you can, there are certain times you just say, oh, I just can't rest. But guess what? If he leads you by these pastures, he provides nutritionally perfectly for his sheep, and he brings you into a calm place, then he's not mandating. It's actually a result of the relationship. He brings you to lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside the still. It literally speaks of the waters of rest, the peaceful waters. See, his provision his, protect, his protection, as he's leading us, produces a calmness and a confidence in those who trust him. He offers this rest to his people. Let me put the emphasis on one word in that last sentence. He offers this rest to his people. See, he could offer you, me, us, something in a human experience because of his presence and his, his forgiveness. We could offer something. But by being an offer, we don't have to accept it. If he required it, then we'd have to take it. But our free will will not receive it as a sense of rest because we had to have it. It was mandated. But if we can recognize, he offers you and me this rest, this, this peace, he leads us to that point. So even in trial and adversity, as we're going to see, even in difficulty, realize he offers us this rest. And I think it's something that, as we see, I believe it's Hebrews 4, that's speaking of entering into his rest, knowing his provision, knowing him as Lord, knowing who he is, and, and growing in that personal, deep, and intimate, and private relationship with him. We start understanding this offer of rest. Well, we can rest when people can't figure out why you can rest. We can have a peace that surpasses understanding because with thanksgiving, we presented our petitions, our supplications to God. And this peace, which surpasses understanding, guards our hearts and minds. Because, man, God, you're so good. And, and it defies logic to those around you. You have a rest and a calmness because of his leadership, his lordship, his shepherding. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. Soul speaking of 
um, the the seat of, of emotion, decision-making. In this human frame, it's kind of the center of the soul, center point. So what he's saying is he restores this part. Well, he doesn't need to restore something that was already properly stored, okay? What's that telling you and me? That we tend to wander, or we tend to wonder, or we tend to, to just get off course, and, and maybe even a distant from the Lord. And then we realize, man, I'm off course. I'm out of line. I got to get my life together. I got to get my act together. I got to get back to church. And so sometimes in that reasoning, we deduce or conclude, okay, I'm going to start going to church. And you connect with a friend and you find a place and you start going to church. But what we miss when we come back to the Lord is a very important principle. He restores you. See, my thought that I return to the Lord is a response to his calling to me. Literally, he, you and me, he brings me back to him. Doesn't that take a lot of pressure off of you? It takes a lot of pressure where you go, I have to do this for the Lord. Well, guess what? He brings you back. It's that friend who loves the Lord that invites you. It's that person who encourages you. They're not the ones that are calling you. They're the instrument he uses to direct you. And bring you back into a deeper relationship and a, and a greater understanding of his presence. He brings me back to him. We see also he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. So there's an element that's so foundational, so simple, and so often overlooked. In order for him to lead, you actually need to follow. Otherwise, there's a separation. And it's super, super simple, isn't it? But we have to be open and, and, and not let our crisis or our, or our excitement or our situation or relationships or whatever, let's not let them interfere. Let's allow ourselves to discern, am I, is he leading me? Am I tuned and am I in, uh, in sync with the system? Am I repetitive in a type of religion? Or, or am I responsive? to the direction I see him calling me? Am I, am I being led by him? And so we notice he tells us he leads. He leads what? In the paths of righteousness. Now, first righteousness, we've got to understand, even to find out of Philippians, is his righteousness through Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ implanted within us, his right living, his right thinking, his right ways, or a part of us as Christians. They're implanted. So righteousness is not my ability to perform. Righteousness, if anything, would be measured by my willingness to obey. Living out that righteousness, notice it says his paths, plural. It's not one path. Now, I know that sounds odd to us, but we sometimes frame this image that it's like, okay, I want to I know the will of God. We don't have to raise hands, but most people who have chose to come to church and are choosing to be online to catch this message or whatever, there's an element they want to know the will of God, and they want to walk in that will. They want to be aware of it. So there's this picture sometimes we perceive, this thought, that the, the will of God is much like a needle in the haystack. And with all the deception and distractions in the world, we've got to sort through, and we've got to find that needle, that pathway of God, and we've got to stay attuned in this narrow path. We've got to stay focused on it. I would suggest to you that that imagery is inconsistent with the very nature of God, with an abundant, gracious, kind, and perfect leader. I would suggest to you the paths are, are different. The destination is the same. The sanctification is still is essential. It's a part of the process. But where you, God may lead you through this one path and on this one way, the path of his righteousness is for your purification, for your sanctification. And somebody else may be going what seems to be an easier path. And you seem to struggle to find progress. You, you don't seem to be gaining a spiritual elevation like they are. But it's not about comparison. It's about obedience. About realizing, yeah, you're on a different pathway, but the same destination. And I think there's times I go, okay, Lord, what do you, I want to, I don't know if I do this or this or this. I had a situation early on, I mean, I was maybe eight, 10 years as a Christian, and it was a really important issue to me, and I, I needed to resolve it. It was really essential to our whole family and where we were going and stuff. And I prayed, I set aside a month. I just got up earlier in the morning. 
And I walked and prayed. And I would go for like an hour. And I did that every day. And it was such a good discipline, you know, right? Because surely you're going to know the will of God if you're willing to make a sacrifice for God. So I got up and I was excited. And, you know, well, it's getting to the end of the month. And I haven't got any email from the Lord. You know what I mean? There's nothing definitive that I could like lay my hat on. That's it. That's how he said it. So I'm kind of a little distraught, almost disappointed and literally concerned about how efficient this whole prayer thing was. So I keep, well, get up next morning. And I remember I was literally like, like two days before this decision had to be made. And I'm like, Lord, I don't, I don't really know what you're directing me to. Do you want me to do this or this or this? And, and almost audibly, he said, yes. It's like, well, it was multiple choice, boss. <laughs> I mean, I got to be one of the, he's like, it's almost like he said to me, Danny, I'll, I'll bless you in either one of those decisions. I've just enjoyed the time with you. Because it's interesting, there was just all, I thought it would have to be this one and that would determine the right vocation and the right relationship and the situation. No, there's only one way it can be, ah, which I just described some of you. He's kind of like, oh, I'm going to pop if I don't figure this out. The path of righteousness are oriented around your willingness for obedience. And he may show you things you never thought you could do and where you could go. It'll always be packaged, surrounded, fenced, and blessed by his word. But I want to encourage you. These paths sometimes are so grand and so different and so diverse than what we thought. And the thing that we thought we had to do, we, we didn't realize that he had a broader view and a greater excuse me, work he would do in our lives. And some of us can tell of that. We look back and go, I would have never done it that way. I would have never taken that path. But now I see the faithfulness of God. Now I see the hand of God. Now I see him teaching me to let go of things and bring his righteousness forth from me. Wow, what an amazing thing God is doing. Notice it's for his namesake. Everyone who truly knows the shepherd desires to be a good witness for him. Every single Christian desires to be a good witness for, for Jesus Christ. What a witness is, is a representative, a, a replica, so to speak. Someone who, when others look at your life, they go, man, there's something about them. There's, they may even, if they were trained in truth, say, man, that's just so clear, even the way Jesus would do it. I, I can verify that by some of the details you could share. We won't have a sharing time right now, but you could say, well, man, I was at work and this boss come in and then I was with my coworkers. And then I said words I've never said before. Man, I felt terrible. Why do you feel terrible? You used to say it all the time. They say it. Why does it bother you? Because you know, it just didn't reflect the love of Jesus Christ. It didn't witness well. It didn't speak well of the one I love because we long to, to, to live in ways and, and in such a manner that we live for his namesake, that people walk away going, there's something about that person. I don't know if it's a God thing or whatever it is, but they have a different control. They have a calmness. They have a power. They have something about them that's so relaxing. We want it to speak of his name. So I want to encourage you, you know, you, as you feel convicted at times, let the Lord adjust. Let him bring you to an understanding and, and teach you what it means to be a good witness. We got to crank it up, or at least I do. You guys are just sitting there waiting. But verse four, yeah, yeah. It literally means even though, even though, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in this life, with him as the Lord, your shepherd, the all-existing one, you don't get removed from difficulty. You get carried through them. You are, it's brought to your attention and your awareness or your experience. It's not, you're not, like, it's not taken out of the way. Ultimately, I say you're, you're, you're walked through. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. A valley we know we could describe maybe in recognizing not just the poetry and the similitude and what's being conveyed to us. He, he went from being the Lord is my shepherd, I think, as we could see, um, as literally just a shepherd leading sheep. And now he speaks of the Lord leading this person. And I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Valley is a low point. You're, you're surrounded in a, in a valley. Does that, does that make sense? So if you think of that picture, here's just, just well, maybe in some cases, insurmountable walls around you. 
the low point. You've been there. Maybe some of you are there now. You're in this low point. But notice you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Death casts a shadow, but for there to be a shadow, there must be light. So death, even if you could think of it as a type of a mountain, an obstacle, if you would. And the, the, the obstacle, depending on its form and how solid, light doesn't pass through it. It's on this side of it, and it's over it. So we see here, death casts a shadow, but there must be a light for a shadow to be present. See, shadows are powerless, agreed? Shadows, a dog, you know, the shadow of a dog won't bite you. The various things you think of a shadow, they're, they're not the problem. They represent, they, they said that maybe there's something there. But understand this. Jesus, the great shepherd, has conquered death, and therefore we only pass through the shadow of death. The light of the world has conquered death and darkness. So as a Christian, see, David understood this. Not as a Christian. He looked forward to the Messiah who would come. But we live here on the, on the cross and the victory of the cross. And we can look and go, man, David understood eternity. He realized that he would be with the fathers. He didn't see life ending in death. He understood it would be this shadow, this valley. But you and I, see, we live on this side of the cross where we see in its detail through Scripture that Jesus conquered death and hell. And so though this body will, as we say, pass away, we will then move beyond the shadow of the valley of death and be in his very presence, in, in a new, new body, in a, in a new uh, form, so to speak, an eternal body. So yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You guys seen some of those? They're kind of getting outdated now. But remember the no fear t-shirts? No fear. One of the dumbest things you could put on a shirt. Unless you really have some context. No fear. Oh, go stand in front of a truck and yell at it. You know what I mean? You think about it. It's like, and I've I seen it got Christianized. So you know, when you Christianize something, you take a secular term and you throw a verse under it to make it sound spiritual. I've always seen that. But here's the only way you can see it that makes sense. I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Because the, the Lord, the all-knowing one, the existing one, the eternal one who was and is and is to come, who does not change, who is the same yesterday, day, today, and forever, he is with me. And, it, and it's something that's so simplistic and so, so small in, in letters and in length, but so important for our lives. The Lord is with me. What about the difficulty? What about the trial? What about the loss of a loved one? What about the pending departure of a dear friend? Or, or you fill in the blanks in this world you live in. I'm not, I'm not afraid. It's not a statement of defiance and self-promotion. It's a statement of humility when you know the Lord is my shepherd. I, I'm fine. I'm going to go through this. It's not going to be easy. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me been much discussion about which is which, the rod or the staff, and, and actually what each one is. We know contemporary terms, um, modern day shepherding, and how some of the implements have changed. But bottom line, the rod is, it speaks of a shorter stick, if you would, a type almost of club. It enabled to make a strong strike. Uh, it was, some of them were, were blunt and some of them, and pointed on, or more sharpened on one end. But they really were for protection and correction. The staff, the staff represented strength and direction. So strength in the sense that even the shepherd would hold on to the staff. Climbing a hill, the shepherd, the staff represented, you know, direction and stability. The staff was also used, in, in those days it wasn't hooked as many of our imagery and illustrations show, but it was functionally the same thing. It had a bend to it, a crook. And so when a sheep was entangled in, in briar, entangled in brush, or was at risk, or in a place on the rocks, or, or in the creek, the shepherd could take that top end and, and grab that sheep and bring it up. Or even firmly, or real firmly if necessary, if it's a stubborn sheep, bring about correction and give it direction. It's comforting to know 
that the great shepherd of your soul, it says in Hebrews, is directing your steps and protecting you as he leads you. Do you like getting corrected? Good, we're all paying attention. No one likes the correction unless they understand the purpose. Then we realize, okay, it's actually better, but you still don't like it entirely. But nonetheless, you realize, okay, I, and you, I know me, I, I know all of us, we do look and go, wow, I'm so glad the Lord got my attention on that. I'm so glad he brought me around and redirected me or corrected me. The rod and the staff comfort me, psalmist says. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It seems odd, doesn't it? It's almost outside of the comparison. But realize it's the shepherd. And this one who follows the shepherd is, is, is realizing something. And especially we know of David. Many believe this psalm was actually a little bit later in his life. David had a lot of enemies. David had a lot of people that literally wanted to kill him because of his position. They, they, that's just how things work then and now. But it says here that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Do you eat when your enemy's right there ready to take you out? You might grab an MRE on the move. You may grab a snack. You might grab a biscuit. I don't know. But you ain't settling in and kicking back. You're alert. You're attentive. You're protective. But he's conveying when the Lord is your shepherd, even when the enemy and the adversary and the trials and the difficulties are all around you, he prepares a table. A table is not just a passing snack. It's not a brown bag special. What's pictured and conveyed to us is his abundance and his presence and so much. And he says he wants you and I to understand, even when we're in this tough stage and difficult part of life, the Lord prepares a table for you. He doesn't erase, eradicate, and eliminate the enemies. They're still there. He just holds them at bay. He prevents them from disturbing you while you sit down at this buffet by God and you're actually relaxed. So you have to take those thoughts when you sit at a buffet and you provided this, you, you, you can only enjoy it if you know you're, you're, you're safe, if you know everything's taken care of. So he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. To anoint with oil, you can look it up and check it out. A good uh, biblical framework for it is in Exodus chapter 30. But it literally spoke of to sanctify or to set apart as holy. So here David is realizing you're setting me apart for a purpose in this world, in this season, in this time, in this moment where you happen to currently live, where you currently reside and may have your being, God has set you apart for it. He has anointed you. Not a lot of people come to Mount and go, man, I feel so anointed here. But guess what? Many leave here and go, man, that was a good time in my life. And it's nothing to do with topography or temperature. It's got the heart condition. When we're willing to say, wherever I'm at, I believe the Lord has me there. And I believe he has a purpose for me. He set me apart for, for his purposes, whatever it may be. My cup runs over. My cup runs over, speaking of that simplicity of abundant blessing and provision. Now, cup running over, the contents of the cup. Maybe I, may I can give you, uh, hopefully, a, a first reference and the first picture, not of clothing and apparel and housing and stuff. First thing, this, oh, he provides you and me this overflowing of, think, grace, of love, of joy of hope, of peace. That's what he provides us overflowing. These other things come and go. Your, your preference and your selection changes through time of your life. But this abundant blessing, God has given you grace, me grace, love that I didn't ever have, a joy that's not rooted in happiness, a confidence in hope because of his promises, the peace that surpasses understanding, overflowing. I just don't want to hinder it. I don't want to quench it. I don't want to drain it out the bottom. I want to let it overflow. I want to experience, and hopefully you do too. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Is goodness what you would speak of when you lose a loved one? Is mercy what you speak of when you deal with accusation? They're there. 
We just don't always notice them. It says, goodness and mercy will follow me. And I guess my exhortation would be, keep them close. Don't push them away. Even in the midst of hardship and hard times, be willing to say, Lord, help me see this from your perspective. Help me to experience your goodness because I don't see anything good right now. I hope you have that relationship with the Lord where you're that deeply aware of his love that you can speak transparently of your feelings to where you can say, God, I don't get this hurts. I don't see anything good coming from this. I want, could you help me understand your mercy and your goodness? Can I see those things because they follow me? I just don't want to push them away. I don't want to separate from them. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord speaks up to reside, I will abide, I will remain in the house of the Lord forever. That's actually a declaration oriented in a decision. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus was teaching his disciples, and in John chapter 6, he says to his disciples something that was disturbing. We understand why it would be disturbing. He said to them, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And they couldn't understand. They weren't seeing. They were so stuck with this point of view, they couldn't see the spiritual truth that he was unpacking. And so when he said that, they're like, oh, it's disgusting. It was a hard saying. Who can understand it? It literally it spoke of to them, this was scandalous that he would say such a thing like that. And in verse 66 of John chapter 6, we're told that many disciples turned back and walked with him no more. See, it's not that they abandoned and denied that Jesus exists. They no longer drew close. They no longer wanted to be right close and hear what he had to say because something was hard in their life. Something was difficult. It was a doctrine they weren't familiar with. And they pulled back. They didn't embrace, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I, get, I think we've all been there where you just kind of pull back. But understand the other elements of that story. Jesus turns his attention to the remaining disciples. And he says to them, what about you? What are you going to do? And Peter, that wonderful spokesman with the foot-shaped mouth, he says so quickly, Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Don't you love that statement? Here's why I love it. Peter said this in that statement. I have no clue what you're talking about. I have no clue. I don't know this flesh and drinking your blood. I, I I can't. I don't know what you're talking about. But I ain't leaving. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not going to let trials and hardship and heartache and pain and suffering push me away from you. I believe you'll teach me. Where have we got to go? You have the words of eternal life. That simplicity, that sense of like, I have this relationship and the situations around me are not going to rob me of this relationship. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I could probably continue for that long, so let's quit at this point. Have the worship team come back up and we're going to close out in a word of prayer and worship by way of music. As we often do, I love to close our time, the prayer. I love to grab, or not grab, but take hold of that a prayer from Scripture and those truths that are so encouraging as we learn to pray. And today what I want to do, though, is I actually want to just pray through Psalm 23. So if you'll stand with me, we will pray together, and then uh, we will close out our time with a song of worship together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this study. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, God, that you're all-knowing. Always have been, always will be. You're unchanging. And you're our shepherd. You know what's best for us. You know our ways better than we do. You know our needs better than we do. You provide for us in ways that we would have never even thought to request. And so we praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that when we put our faith in you, we literally just responded to your invitation of forgiveness. We responded to your grace by agreeing 
with your truth that we must be born again. We agree with you, God, that we've sinned and went against you. We acknowledge that we need your forgiveness. We ask for that forgiveness that comes only through you, Jesus, for you're the only one who died and rose from the dead, who lived a sinless life and laid down that life that we may live. Thank you, God. And so, God, with that relationship, you've opened up an understanding. You brought us into an awareness that you are our shepherd. You provide everything we need. You bring us rest. You help us to stretch out and lie down. You help us to be calmed and comforted. You restore us. You lead us in your ways for your glory and our joy. Oh, we thank you. We will face, we know, difficulty, adversity. We will be through the walking through the valley of the shadow of death for some of us multiple times in our lifetime alongside friends and eventually in our own life. But Lord, you're faithful. We know that you are faithful. We'll fear nothing that this world throws at us for you are with us. And so God, may we be corrected by you and directed. May we be comforted by your ways as you deal with our enemies. Even in dealing with our enemies, you provide us a place of rest and sustenance and growth. Thank you, God. You set us apart. You provide abundantly. Surely goodness and mercy are always around us. Oh God, in your strength, because of your love, we choose to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, we sing to you, Jesus. Amen.